Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep Freedom of Space by Arthur C. Clarke. This is uh, from a magazine called Infinity October 1957. Infinity Science Fiction uh, from October 1957. It's part of a series uh, run over two issues uh, with, I think, with six stories by Clarke, all very short. This is number four. The series is called The Other Side of the Sky, later released as a book, um, uh, probably with some other stories because they're really quite short. Um, and uh, I, I cannot understate the importance of the date of publication, Eric. Cannot understate you can't it. Can't understate it. Cannot understate the importance of you the sure date. You don't mean overstate? Uh, oh yeah, probably. <laughs> I cannot <laughs> overstate the importance of the date of this publication. I can, however, understate the meaning of overstate, perhaps. <laughs> 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 so, um, why is this important? Because a certain something happened on the 4th of October, 1957, that will have some bearing on the importance of this story, uh, which would have come out in at least September in 1957, rather than October of 1957. Right. But it would have been still on the newsstands. Probably. Yep. I don't remember when Infinity Science Fiction was published, but I do remember what happened early in October of 1957. Well, I was not there. Could you hint? I remember waking up. My, my father would uh, typically get a copy of the New York Times and the New York Daily News every Saturday night. Um, when they first hit the stands, it would be the Sunday papers, and he would pick those up at, at that stage in my life. And uh, I remember waking up and walking into the kitchen, finding the Daily News um, on the kitchen table, and there it was, Sputnik. Yep. And, I mean, there it was. And we had spent... I mean, all of America, you know, eager youngsters such as myself had been listening as the Vanguard rockets. We America kept announcing that we were going into space and the Vanguard rockets would take up, would, would be fire and then just fall flat over mm-hmm. where they go up 100 feet and go down. I mean, it was it was horribly embarrassing. They was televised these launches mm-hmm. and they got nowhere. And then. There was the headline, big bold letters. I can see it now. Um, it is perhaps the first datable. No, I guess it's the it's the first datable by a day uh, public event that I can remember. Um, That's interesting. Powerful. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like a uh, not just a national news headline or a regional news headline. It's a planetary headline. One that. Uh, could only be spread uh, <laughs> with video um, by the production of more such <laughs> pieces of news, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think we should read the story, and then maybe we can come back and talk about why it's so interesting and important and uh, the importance of the dates and stuff like Good. that. Would you read it for us? My pleasure. Freedom of Space by Arthur C. Clarke. 
Not many of you, I suppose, can imagine the time before the satellite relays gave us our present world communications system. When I was a boy, it was impossible to send TV programs across the oceans or even to establish reliable radio contact around the curve of the Earth without picking up a fine assortment of crackles and bangs on the way. Yet now we take interference-free circuits for granted and think nothing of seeing our friends on the other side of the globe as clearly as if we were standing face to face. Indeed, it's a simple fact that without the satellite relays, the whole structure of world commerce and industry would collapse. Unless we were up here on the space stations to bounce their messages around the globe, how do you think any of the world's big business organizations could keep their widely scattered electronic brains in touch with each other? But all this was still in the future, back in the late 70s, when we were finishing work on the relay chain. I've already told you about some of our problems and near disasters. They were serious enough at the time, but in the end, we overcame them all. The three stations spaced around Earth were no longer piles of girders, air cylinders, and plastic pressure chambers. Their assembly had been completed, we had moved aboard, and could now work in comfort, unhampered by spacesuits, and we had gravity again. Now that the stations had been set slowly spinning, not real gravity, of course, but centrifugal force feels exactly the same when you're out in space. It was pleasant being able to pour drinks and to sit down without drifting away on the first air current. Once the three stations had been built, there was still a year's solid work to be done, installing all the radio and TV equipment that would lift the world's communication networks into space. It was a great day when we established the first TV link between England and Australia. The signal was beamed up to us in Relay 2 as we sat above the center of Africa. We flashed it across to 3, poised over New Guinea, and they shot it down to Earth again clear and clean after its 90,000-mile journey. These, however, were the engineers' private tests. The official opening of the system would be the biggest event in the history of world communication, an elaborate global telecast in which every nation would take part. It would be a three-hour show, as for the first time, the live TV camera roamed around the world, proclaiming to mankind that the last barrier of distance was down. The program planning, it was cynically believed, had taken as much effort as the building of the space stations in the first place. And of all the problems the planners had to solve, the most difficult was that of choosing a master of ceremonies to introduce the items in the elaborate global show that would be watched by half the human race. Heaven knows how much conniving, blackmail, and downright character assassination went on behind the scenes. All we knew is that a week before the great day, a non-scheduled rocket came up to orbit with Gregory Wendell aboard. This was quite a surprise, since Gregory wasn't as big a TV personality as, say, Jeffers Jackson in the U.S. or Vince Clifford in Britain. However, it seemed that the big boys had canceled each other out and Greg had got the coveted job through one of those compromises so well known to politicians. Greg had started his career as a disc jockey on a university radio station in the American Midwest. 
and had worked his way up through the Hollywood and Manhattan nightclub circuits until he had a daily nationwide program of his own. Apart from his cynical yet relaxed personality, his biggest asset was his deep velvet voice for which he could probably thank his Negro blood. Even when you flatly disagreed with what he was saying, even indeed when he was tearing you to pieces in an interview, it was still a pleasure to listen to him. We gave him the grand tour of the station and even strictly against regulations, took him out through the airlock in a spacesuit. He loved it all. But there were two things he liked in particular. This air you make, he said, it beats the stuff we have to breathe out in New York. This is the first time my sinus trouble has gone since I went into TV. He also relished the low gravity. At the station's rim, a man had half his normal earth weight, and at the axis, he had no weight at all. However, the novelty of his surroundings didn't distract Greg from his job. He spent hours at Communications Central, polishing his script and getting his cues right and studying the dozens of monitor screens that would be his windows on the world. I came across him once while he was running through his introduction to Queen Elizabeth, who would be speaking from Buckingham Palace at the very end of the program. He was so intent on his rehearsal that he never even noticed I was standing beside him. Well, that telecast is now part of history. For the first time, a billion human beings watched a single program that came live from every corner of the earth and was a roll call of the world's greatest citizens. Hundreds of cameras on land and sea and air looked inquiringly at the turning globe. At the end, there was that wonderful shot of the earth through a zoom lens on the space station, making the whole planet recede until it was lost among the stars. There were a few hitches, of course. One camera on the bed of the Atlantic wasn't ready on cue, and we had to spend some extra time looking at the Taj Mahal. And owing to a switching error, Russian subtitles were superimposed on the South American transmission, while half the USSR found itself trying to read Spanish. But this was nothing to what might have happened. Through the entire three hours, introducing the famous and the unknown with equal ease was the mellow yet never oratun flow of Greg's voice. He did a magnificent job. Congratulations came pouring up the beam the moment the broadcast was finished. But he didn't hear them. He made one short private call to his agent and then went to bed. Next morning, the earthbound ferry was waiting to take him back to any job he cared to accept. But it left without Greg Wendell, now junior station announcer of Satellite 2. They'll think I'm crazy, he said, beaming happily, but why should I go back to that rat race down there? I've all the universe to look at. I can breathe smog-free air. The low gravity makes me feel a Hercules, and my three darling ex-wives can't get at me. He kissed his hand to the departing rocket. So long, Earth, he called. I'll be back when I start pining for Broadway traffic jams and bleary penthouse dawns. And if I get homesick, I can look at anywhere on the planet just by turning a switch. Why, I'm more in the middle of things here than I could ever be on Earth. Yet I can cut myself off from the human race whenever I want. He was still smiling. 
as you watch the ferry begin the long fall back to earth towards the fame and fortune that could have been his. And then, whistling cheerfully, he left the observation lounge in eight-foot strides to read the weather forecast for Lower Patagonia. <laughs> All right. So uh, I can still learn things from Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, he threw in a vocab word here I'd never seen before. Orutund, which ah. turn, uh, turns out means full, round, and imposing. And um, Yeah, that's a problem. Well, I don't know. That's that. Yeah, because it has. It turns out that it has a second meaning, which is bombastic. Yeah, uh, I don't uh, think I, I do. I, I do use oratund in in my normal vocabulary, but I always mean it in the first sense that yeah. you used. Uh, but but clearly that's not what Clark means here. He no, means that second sense. This is a a very professional guy. Our main character, who is not the narrator. Um, <laughs> I was going to name him wrongly. He's Greg Wendell. Um, but to me, I think he's not that, really, because that's not a real person. I think the person Arthur C. Clarke has envisioned is actually Paul Robeson. Did you guess that? Or do you see why I would think that? I understand why you would think that, and Paul Robeson did have an oratund voice in the first sense of the word, but I, I think that uh, I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that. But anyway, I, Paul Robeson was famous for being a a, a communist sympathizer, and at mm -hmm. this time, 1957, he had already left the United States for Russia, mm -hmm. having been condemned during the McCarthy era. It seems to me unlikely that uh, that Clark was trying to rehabilitate uh, Robeson here in some way. Well, here's why Here's why I think it. Um, I thought the, the title <laughs> of the story is kind of odd. <laughs> uh, freedom of Space. Um, that's interesting. But um, one of the things that uh, we're told are, uh, are um, Gregory Wendell uh, loves about the space station is... He says that he can breathe easier here. It's not smoggy, right? Mm -hmm. um, but he also likes the low gravity. Um, one of the things that uh, Paul Robeson said when he left, uh, well, when he first visited the Soviet Union in the 1930s, is he said, here I am not a Negro, but a human being. For the first time in my life, I walk in full human dignity. And it's like this idea of freedom of space, a freedom of, of movement, freedom of air. And what's so crazy is there is no air in space, right? So when he airs this, this uh, broadcast, and uh, one of the people mentioned, one of the very few people who is real, who's mentioned in this story is Queen Elizabeth, who still does broadcasts from Buckingham Palace and has done so since probably the early 60s broadcasting all over the planet her Christmas message, right? And I was thinking about the first actual real life incident where people all over the planet would have a broadcast kind of like this and it wasn't actually probably uh, certainly not for you know the first broadcast from space of of a broadcaster connecting all the people of the planet, but rather everybody watching the first Apollo moon landing uh, in 1969. So there's a lot really going on in this story because it is 
quote, quote unquote predicting the future, except it's not really predicting it. Uh, but uh, we also have to acknowledge well, that Clark is largely responsible for the idea of satellites in the first place, right? Or that's true. Well, you mean communication you mean geostationary? Yeah, communication satellites, right? Geostationary, and um, and he says in I believe that original uh, paper that there has to be at least three of them to cover the Earth, and that's how many he has right. here. And he centers right. the one that our uh, our main character. Uh, Paul, oh, Greg Wendell, um, he centers that one over Africa, which I thought was interesting as well, because he could have centered that one over somewhere else. So it's really interesting. The, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still going to I'm gonna agree with much of what you say, but I'm still going to disagree with the Paul Robeson. I think that this story is, uh, as is common for Clark, it is quite um, Anglophilic. I mean, he, he really does love his England, which is uh, a surprise <laughs> given how – well, it's not just that. It's a surprise given how he spent mo- a substantial part of his adult life away from England and for reasons that I think I actually would like to get into a little bit. But um, but in fact, the, the broadcast is from uh, – is goes from Australia to um, – where is it? Sorry, um, the broadcast goes. Was it from India to no, from Austra- yeah. Australia to England? Mm-hmm. All right, and it uh, goes across Africa. <clears throat> That's because you need to have English language uh, countries be doing this. Just as of all the people in the world, the culminating luminary is going to be the Queen of England. Mm. Um, I think this has to be. English. He he loves England. He loves things to be English. Paul Robeson had an extraordinary voice. Yeah. When I was younger, I would try to mimic it, and it would fail terribly. Uh, as my vocal apparatus becomes more aged, <laughs> I'm not even going to embarrass myself by trying it. But Paul Robeson absolutely had an oratund voice in that first sense that you're using. Mm-hmm. So it would make very little sense, wouldn't it, to say that um, that. Greg, I called him Wendell, but maybe it's Wendell, um, had a mellow yet never oratund flow. Paul Robeson was always oratund in that first sense. Yeah, uh, it's described as a deep velvet voice. Um, Yet never oratund, it says here. It You're says right. Greg Wendell's voice is You're never right. oratund. You're right. It just and made that's me. Why th- it made me think. That's of, why I think. It, well. Yeah. No. I, see why? I, why yeah. I think I, it, he must have meant that that less common meaning of bombastic. It's because it's significant. All, when he's when he's done, Greg gets every job offer. He could have done anything. That's right. But he chooses yeah. not to leave this place because he wants to do the weather in, weather in Patagonia, right? Right. So, uh, um, uh, it's well, a yeah. cute button of an ending, but I, I I see it as political. One of the one of the it's very brief story, right? One of the things that the hitches that happens um, is the the Soviets uh, get their their uh, subtitles in uh, Spanish and. South America gets their subtitles in Russian. And yep. this is the the new planetary society, right? Everybody needs subtitles. Yeah, things can go wrong. It happens. Um, but 
thinking globally. Yeah, this is, uh, well, you know, Arthur C. Clarke was alive when I was a kid. Um, yeah. And uh, every once in a while you'd see him doing satellite broadcasts from his home in uh, Sri Lanka, right? Or Ceylon, right. maybe. Is, was it, I, no, well, it changed no, it was, somewhere it, in the It was also maybe. Sri Lanka before he died. Yeah. yeah. So um, this is, uh, you know, a guy who uh, is saying this is going to happen. Um, worked out the physics enough so that people could figure out how to do it. Um, but also, you know, we don't do it this way. We don't actually have people in space managing the television signal transmissions, right? This is all automated, done with the robots. Uh, but you don't have a story if, you know, about a man leaving a place uh, that's racist um, and coming to a place where he's a global citizen right where the air is clear i can't imagine that the air in this <laughs> space station is better you know the one the iss orbiting the earth right now is actually sweeter than that of you know going out to the countryside i think this is a metaphor um and so yeah it doesn't have to be paul robeson but it definitely has to be someone with his gravitas uh, because when he interviews you and he's eviscerating you, um, you uh, it was still a pleasure to listen, right? Mm. And I think that that's, uh, you know, it's, whether you think Paul Robeson was an evil communist or, you know, just a guy who sympathized with socialism and uh, internationality and uh, treating people nicely and... You have to agree that he was a wonderful singer with an amazing voice, a powerful actor, and a powerful intellectual. Um, this guy, it's interesting how he gets the job. Is gr uh, More famous people, um, it seems. It, it seemed that the big boys had canceled each other out. I'll tell you, today, canceling means... Uh, <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke would be canceled for calling him having having had Negro blood. Right, that word is no longer acceptable. But it isn't done with malice. It, it's done with the idea that this is going to change our world. Um, and I think this air you make—that's the words that uh, Wendell uses to describe. You know, it's great. This air you make, and that air has that you know broadcast sense as well as the air of you know their space capsule or whatever uh their space satellite air so i i, I think that this is an interesting story not just about the the hard sf elements which absolutely he gets right but rather because he's making a social comment as well. Uh, it's often said, you know, there aren't that many black people in 1950s science fiction. There's one literally depicted on this story. And if you were at the newsstands wanting to read about this amazing hot topic of uh, space in October of 1957, uh, this might still be on the stands. And if it wasn't, it'd be picked up pretty quick because it has on the cover... A lady orbiting in a space station, but once you get inside, um, you read a story about a black man in space uh, telling people about what's going on down in the weather, weather-strewn Earth where they are breathing the bad air. Everything you say, in my opinion, my friend, is right, but I'm going to try to add something else. Sure. Because I think that this story 
for those who read a lot of science fiction and for those who have read a lot of Clark has a lot more going on. And some of it explains why it's doing what it's doing with a black man. First of all, the story, as you say, gets the hard SF right. You know, it figures out that with the satellite being 22,000 miles above the Earth and you've got to bounce up to one and across to the other and then down, it's going to be a 90,000 mile trip. And he's got he's got all of this worked out. He clearly didn't realize that you could automate uh, these satellites or maybe he did but wanted to have a reason for someone to go up and and make a a, a, a life choice mm-hmm. um, in a fall of moon dust 1961 four years later than this a british tourist is in a uh, a, a vessel that is sinking into the, uh, the 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 dust that comprises the 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 mare the seas on the moon uh, that's not what really is the case but that was understood thought to be the case in 1961 and um in order to keep the passengers comfortable tea is being given out um one of the passengers takes a cup of tea and says this is the best tea the first decent cup of tea i've had since i've come here meaning the moon And Clark leaves it to the reader to recognize that they've had to increase the pressure on the vessel so that it wouldn't be crushed as it sinks into the into the the dust. And Mm. that higher pressure has changed the boiling point of water. So this is the first time since he's come to the moon. So this idea that space is a better place is it's not unique in this story in Clark's work. In fact, space is often a better place in Clark's work. So one of the things that I find fascinating about this story is that he's using hard SF mm. to validate a fantasy. Yep. Right? Not soft SF, not the squishy, the hard SF. So what kind of a fantasy is he, in fact, validating? Um, I, I don't want to get too deeply into the reasons for discussing uh, Clark's sexuality. But it was not, it was at about this time that Alan Turing killed himself mm. because homosexuality was illegal in England. Under the Queen o- Elizabeth. That exactly. Uh, after Clark, having won World War II for uh, Britain. Yep. Arthur Clark at this time in his life had not acknowledged publicly that he was gay. In fact, he tried very hard to make sure that he was not thought of as gay. He even had a sham marriage for a number of years in order to make it seem that he was not gay. But if you read his stories, you will find again and again when there's the possibility of a heterosexual romantic relationship, it always fails with the man rejecting the woman. Mm. As in childhood's end, for example, Mr. Gregson will not talk to his wife when she cuddles up next to his knee and he just ignores her. He tries to make his knees knobbly, we're told. That's a 1950 childhood's end. I think that's a 1956. So it's the very same era as this. In fact, the world that Arthur C. Clarke inhabited was one where he would be better served by cutting himself off. Hence, he ultimately moved to Sri Lanka or Ceylon at the time and lived out his adult life there and almost never traveled almost never traveled what what greg wendell or wendell is doing is finding a way to cut himself off from the three ex-wives finding a way to participate only by looking 
and not by doing. And when it gets to the point that he doesn't want it, he can just turn it all off. This story is indeed a fantasy of the freedom of space. But I think that it is a fantasy that accords with Clark's own desire not to be able to survive as a black man in a white man's world, but as a homosexual in a heterosexual world. Mm. And so when he is happy to be in a position to do no more than read the weather forecast for lower Patagonia, what Greg Wendell, Wendell is doing is satisfying himself by simply saying what is in relation to an area of the world that is almost uninhabited and by contrast to Australia and England is of no interest to the English-speaking world. <laughs> it's a place where if you were there at all, you'd be getting your subtitles in Russian. Mm. I think that Clark is writing something here that really resonates not only in the, the genre question of hard SF and in the, the, the political and economic sense that you were highlighting quite rightly, I think it also resonates very powerfully for people who think of themselves as excluded here down in the earth. I, I love that at the end when he's whistling happily, leaving the lounge to go read that weather forecast, he walks with eight-foot strides, right? This is the real freedom of space is, is you don't have to be meek. You can be yourself. You can take giant leaps, <laughs> and they're just normal, easy things to do it's it's pretty amazing um short short little short story um it inspired so many people um there's a book uh called rocket summer uh by homer hickam that got turned into a movie called october sky about kids looking up at the at night at the sputnik after they found out on october 4th 1957 he goes on to work for nasa and and uh, be one of these guys that uh inspired by that rocket summer um, that it just you you talked about um, when they uh, when they made um, the movie version the next year in 1999 they called it October Sky uh, but uh, rockets Rocket Boys the original book title and October Sky are anagrams of each other so I think we're saying the same <laughs> things here Eric um, yeah. You know, was it Rocket? It was Rocket Boys. Was Rocket the Boys was the the 1998 memoir. October Sky is the 1999 movie based on that. It's interesting. You had a slip of the tongue. You said it was Rocket Summer. Ah, first. yeah, which is a Ray Bradbury book, I believe. It, it's actually the first the first chapter in the Martian Chronicles. There we go. A story about people trying to find a new way to start and find fairyland in space. Mm. But unlike Clark, who goes, has Greg go alone, Bradbury has that happiness in space be an, a multi-generational family with another family about to join them. In other words, what fantasy we want in space is something we're going to have to consider in terms of a much larger sample of the works of the, the great modern science fiction writers. They've left us always more to say. 
Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.